Yo, what's up? Welcome to In the Thick, a podcast. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> sounding like, like you yeah. know. It's Mariana Hosa, MTV rap. It's like, yo, I'm Mariana like, Hosa, rap like up. Big Daddy Kane, like doing. The... <laughs> I know, seriously. Okay. She came in so Harlem. It's suddenly the 80s, like... <laughs> 80s hip hop. I know, okay. seriously. Yo, 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 big raps. All right. I don't know what's Come the matter on, with me. Okay. Hey, welcome to In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture. From a POC perspective, I'm Maria Hinojosa, and seriously, I'm just cracking up right now. <laughs> and I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Our guest is the award-winning journalist Imara Jones. She's the founder and president of Oriya Media. She's the host of The Last Sip, and she's a fellow with the Vocal Foundation. So, hey, Imara, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. So what were you saying? I was a total throwback to the 1980s hip-hop. You were, suddenly, like, in the announcement, I was listening to, like, blazing hip-hop R&B. <laughs> It was like it was like Big me Daddy too. Kane was doing the, the intro and the announcement. And you're looking at me like <laughs> You know it's New York. I'm surprised by very, very little. <laughs> That's why we love New York. Okay, so so listen, here's a clip from one of your latest projects. It's a docuseries called Translash on Free Speech TV and YouTube. I think the thing that I feel right now is I actually feel an entire part of my body I didn't feel before. Like I was totally disconnected from like this entire region. And now it's present. Like, I feel it. So you produced this. You're the subject of this series. And what you decided was you were going to tell the story of transitioning during a time when, you know, there is, like, serious backlash against the trans community, but specifically trans people of color. Mm. But in this last episode, which actually I, I just experienced because I, we too are documenting someone's um, transition, I was witness to somebody who was having breast removal. Mm-hmm. You just documented your breast augmentation. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us about, like, first of all, that's like something very particular to kind of talk about. Mm. Why did you, because there, I bet some people are like, don't talk about that stuff. Talk about, you know, other things. And I'm sure you're going to get backlash no matter what. It's really interesting because in one of our last production meetings for The Last Sip, which will come back next year, um, we had a discussion about what what sh- we should do as a next step, what should be the interim. And everyone... One person said, I think we ought to do a docuseries about your transition. And I said, no one's going to care about that. That's boring. And I had all these other ideas. But you know what? In our editorial meeting, let's put it to a vote. And I was outvoted. (laughs) And the reason why I realized that they wanted me to do this is for a very simple fact. And that is that everyone pretty much knows the term transgender, right? And kind of knows what it is. But nine out of ten Americans say that they don't know anyone who is actually trans. And what that does is it creates the vacuum for the ignorance that is being filled right now by hate and social backlash. So, for instance, um, 2016 was the most violent year on record for people who are LGBTQ. That has only been superseded by 2017. And 2018 is on track to supersede 2017. It's interesting that 2016 a lot of interesting things happened in 2016. But in 2016... Really? It was a really fascinating year. So in 2016, that was the year that topped all others. And then the next year, which, is, which topped all others, was 2017. Which, and then the year that's now on track to top 2017 is now 2018. So we're headed, headed in the wrong direction. And the focal point for that violence are, as you mentioned, trans women of color. Wow. Um, yeah, and... 
And so far in 2018, at least 18 transgender women have been killed. And of those killed, 16 were trans women of color. And I'm going to say at least, you know, entre comillas, in quotes, because we know, right, when we're reporting about violence in the trans community, it's always underreported. And often all these trans homicide victims are misgendered by authorities. There is a trans woman of color, um, serial killer, people believe, on the loose in St. Petersburg right now. You know, Amara, actually, it's in Jacksonville, Florida. And so far this year, three black trans women have been killed. Um, They were shot to death. A fourth trans woman was also shot several times. Um, She survived. Um, All of this essentially resulting from gun violence and transphobia, which is a worrying trend all over the country, but particularly in Florida, which has kind of become the epicenter of this gun control debate in the country. But right now you have a total of at least five trans women of color who have been murdered in the state of Florida so far this year. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so within that, it's almost that I felt that I had as a journalist, as a storyteller, as a person who had the ability to have people listen, that I had a responsibility. I know you, this is like how you've lived your life and you are actually a role model for me and everyone else. Oh my God. Um, It's really true. I I I had a conversation. I love when people say that to her. It's really true though. It is true. And I tell that to her all the time. She's like, no, Julio, no, no, no. I'm glad you said that. Continue. No, it's true. It's like, it's it's the ability to, to understand that news is about what's actually happening in the people's lives that are relevant. And what you are saying to people is that the single largest group of Americans in this country who are not white don't have their stories told in a way that's relevant. And those stories are news. Thank you. So in any event, I felt that I had essentially the same responsibility on this. But but the interesting thing, again, you were like me getting breast augmentation is not news. Yes. And your people are saying, actually, no, it It is is. because I'm of two minds of it, because I think there's a kind of weird fascination. On the other hand, it's like like when I documented Marina um, having their breast reduction, it was like they wanted to put it out there because they're very public about this. Um, So, yeah. It is news to have a woman of color who is transitioning and to say, like you, this is what breast augmentation looks like. Should I do it? And it's informing people, too. And the most important thing is to humanize the story, right? Because... Gender, if you've never had to think about it, kind of like race or all these other issues, Mm. we think about whiteness as the absence of never having to think about race. Right. 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 So to a certain degree, like being being cis, not being trans is never having to really think about gender identity in a specific way. And if you haven't ever thought about it, it's strange. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. It's confusing. But what is not confusing to people, I think, is the human experience, Mm -hmm. desires, wanting to be whole, wanting fulfillment, Mm -hmm. wanting to be our complete selves. And so I tell the story about breast augmentation through that lens in order to turn Mm -hmm. it, to turn me, to turn trans people into a human being. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting you say that because one of the things that when you just told me that about humanizing and, and telling your own story, it's because the mainstream does feel like they don't understand it. And then what you're you're battling, for example, like, I don't know if you guys saw on Netflix, the Ricky Gervais stand-up comedian moment where he was basically, like, spending, like, 10 minutes 
just mocking Caitlyn Jenner and like how it's like, it's so weird. And it's like, so that perception is out there in the mainstream. And what you're saying is like, the only way it's going to change is by telling your story, owning your voice and saying like, this is a reality because it's such a big battle, right? I want to, I want to punch Ricky Gervais in the mouth right now. It must drive you crazy when you really start looking at like how misinformed people are and the popular culture is not helping at all. Yeah, uh, you all will relate to this. So when I was going around telling people, oh, I have this idea for this show, The Last Sip, you know, you should help me fund it. You should, I need money. So give it to me so that we can do it. That's my life. Right? That's my life. That's my life. Oh we my gotta God. ask for it. We you gotta, gotta ask for it. it. Yeah, we feel you. And, we feel you. And so then when I, when I went into places that, you know, care about social change foundations, all the rest of it, um, what they told me in 2016 was, um, why is this show relevant? Uh, we have a black president and we're about to have a woman president. <gasps> Literally heard it from many places. And those are the same people that are surprised that we right. have Donald Trump, right? Exactly, exactly. In that bubble. Right. And it's because there's a huge piece of the story that you're not getting. You're not actually in contact with the country in which you live. It just relates to this battle that we have to face, which is overcoming people's own bubble of privilege who are sitting and making these decisions. You know, and that's what I'm saying, because when you look at diversity in U.S. newsrooms, there isn't a lot of progress that's being made. Um, basically, no. the numbers have barely changed over the past two decades, according to annual surveys conducted by the American Society of News Editors. Um, those numbers um, essentially have a direct effect in terms of what is covered, from what perspective the stories are being covered, exactly. especially when we're talking about race and politics. You know, we need to own our own narrative, yep. which is exactly why I understand that it is critical for journalists of color to own our narratives and own our powers. Yeah. And as journalists, you know, we're on the front lines as journalists of color. Yeah. It's like we are the observers of the canaries in the mine. And then we become the canaries in the mine um, because we feel the effects of these policies first or of these hate-filled words first. And frankly, trans women of color, really, we realize are really the most vulnerable in that sense of being like the canaries in the mine. Why do you think that um, it's important for us to create these hmm. places where we can control the narrative, yeah. where we are able to, you know, educate, because I think there are a lot of people who assume that also we're in a fight with everybody. Mm. And it's like, no, we're actually, angry. we don't like white people. We don't like, but you know, I'm we're, not biased, that, right? we're it's gender not, driven. Like, that's yeah. why this whole thing, you will not replace us. It's like, no, dude. We're not, we don't want to replace you. Actually, we, we want, party we want with to party you, like with you. <laughs> we want to party with you. Right, without the tiki sticks, we'll party with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Without the tiki sticks and the white naturalists, I'm good. Yeah. Right, right. We can so, get on. So in terms of politics specifically, though, Imara, why do you think that we need to be in the political conversation owning that? Mm. All right. Those are two big questions. Um, but I want to circle back to one thing that you mentioned before, just on a personal level, and then I'll come back to that. And that is that what's so interesting, right, is as journalists, like we are trained to think of ourselves as not being the subject, which is one yeah. of the reasons why I think I resisted my story. And I was like, no one's going to care about my story. No one is going to whatever. And it's the same thing that you mentioned when, you know, people tell you all the time, you're so important. We need you. Right. Like, you're, we're just so trained to think that we're yeah. not, that we're the vessel. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. And so right, right, right. With, within that, but on this point, journalists of color, the reason why we are important, I think, is because 
we understand that perspectives do shape how we see the world. So the editor of the New York Times, he thinks what's important, the things that people ask him at the cocktail parties that he goes to, and he considers that news. Right. Yeah. So when you go to pitch him on a story, he's like, well, um, why? So someone told me once about a trans story and they were he was like, well, who cares about that? Why is and it's because in your world, no one's asking you about that. Right. They're asking you about Trump. They're asking you about Miller. So that's what you want to be seen as a leader on. And I think that when we are not able to make those decisions, we understand that our perspective does drive what people think is important. And so. We have to own and tell our own stories because being a journalist isn't only about the objective, trying to find the truth in every story, which is what we ought to do no matter where we come from. But it's also understanding the stories that we think are important that need to be told are totally just driven by our personal narratives. And that's true whether or not you are running The Washington Post or whether or not you're here for Tudor Media. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is to diversify the number of places that tell stories so that we can have that. And the reason why this is really important for politics is what I tell people all the time is that um, news... Okay. (laughs) Our current news outlets are geared towards white men who are between the ages of 45 and 65. Exactly. Boom! And And by the way, some of those dudes are my best friends, by the way. Right, right, of course. Like, I love dudes. Right. Love white dudes between the ages of 45 to 65. We're not complaining about that. Some of you guys are, like, super adorable and super smart, so (laughs) we love you. We're not complaining at all. No (laughs) complaints. And so then, what is the group of people that mostly shows up to vote? White. Yeah, There's yeah, no yeah. coincidence. It's right. because every day those people have the stories that are most relevant told to them and their lives. And they're told that their perspective matters and that it's important that they know. And so exactly. then they show up. And civic participation is also about feeling connected to the larger Thank society you. and what's going on. And that's only happens through the stories that you tell. So if we want more people to participate in democracy, we have to have more stories that are relevant to a wider audience, which is younger and more diverse and queer and all the rest of it. It's really not rocket science. So I just want to say it's like your brain is in my brain and my brain is in your brain because that's what I've been saying. And sometimes I question it. Huh. Sometimes, sometimes I'm like, Oh, Maria. Yeah. You know, the fact that you're doing this is not really going to engender um, more democratic participation. Like, but then I hear you say it and I'm like, OK, yeah, it's true. And then I have to remember that it's true. The number of people who we meet who are like, I feel inspired. I understand my role. I get it. Um, so thank you for saying that back at me. I but it's also it. exhausting. It's I mean, it's also draining oh, yeah. and exhausting because we all feel it like we're doing our things. And and but we get it. We're the ones that get that get things slung at us. Yeah. Right. The arrows are coming our way that we have. a We're agenda driven. We're biased. And, and you got to push through that. And Amara, like that's what attracts me to what you're doing, because we, you know, Futuro Media in the thick, Araya Media, The Last Sip, like we're all kind of in this world. This is our universe. This is our POC intersectional. Let's let's exchange ideas uh, we have similarities. So what is it about Araya and The Last Sip that kind of play into what we're all kind of trying to accomplish here? Yeah, we just did actually the analysis of like for the grant reports and stuff. So we just did all of our stuff that we have to do. And a part <laughs> of it, one of the things I realized in analyzing like our team and our makeup is that yeah, four out of the five people are either women, POC or LGBTQ. 
That's unheard of. Yeah. For, except, for, except for right here. Except for right here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but overall, you know, like, that's just not... It's yeah, not it's the, unheard of. Absolutely. Like, And it's so interesting because um, I was doing research to, like, say why it, that was so different from normal. And the Columbia Journalism Review asked cable news to report on their diversity numbers last year. They wouldn't report. And they literally said, we're not answering that question. Which means that the numbers are terrible, right? So it's so bad. Or they don't have them. They don't even think that way. Right. So that's one thing. And so then because everyone who works on the show comes from, first of all, is black or brown, woman or queer, that automatically means that the content that we produce is totally different. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm really proud of is one show that we had in the wake of Bill Cosby is that we focused an entire show on the plight of sexual assault and recovery amongst black women and girls. Mm. And we were all thinking, have we ever seen a half hour on TV devoted to this subject? And we couldn't, none of us could come up with no, that I've as never an seen answer. That. Right. And it was all, not only was that was the topic, but it was all black women talking about it. And I mean, wow. professors and researchers exactly. and like the people that they say don't exist. I love it. That's yeah. true. It's like, no, actually we have POC um, sex therapists who understand yes. like, oh yeah, right. right you know what I'm talking you. about. Of course I do, but it's just. Oh, you, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. But it's like, beautiful like... to see it reflected back at you in ways you know, for example, I don't know, where did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta. You grew up in Atlanta. Was it easy? It's weird. It was easy being black in Atlanta. It wasn't easy being queer and trans. So that was what was hard because we're in the South. But Atlanta was one of those rare places where um, still to this day that there are African-Americans doing everything. And yeah. so I grew up seeing African-Americans do everything. And so it changes your your perspective. And that was really good. OK, well, I didn't realize that you were um, raised in Atlanta, but yep. that was a very good segue for us to talk about politics right now in this particular moment. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it's also about your background, because we want to kind of dig a, a little bit into what the hell's going on with the Trump administration. And also, hello, you worked in the Clinton White House doing international economic policy and communication. I'm like, hello, that, nothing to sneeze about there. I'm like, damn. So you, you kind of know the scenes. You kind of, you know, you've been out in D.C. You worked in D.C. Yeah. So the last two years, we see all this chaos, right? Yeah. People leaving, discussions. I mean, people, you know, the chief of staff is, is shouting with the national security advisor. <laughs> What's your take on you know, what's behind the doors, like what's happening in the White House? Like, what are we missing? Yeah, I think it's truly amazing that we haven't had a major crisis that has cost people lives, you know, besides Hurricane Maria, which um, Mm -hmm. speaks for itself, sadly. Yeah. But besides that, we could have had something as major on a much larger scale happen in the United States or in the world because... On the best day, the White House is controlled chaos. There's more coming in than than people can react to. Mm. And so there has to be a certain amount of order to make sure that things don't run off the rails. Because, you know, as we would talk about, by the time the decisions reach the president's desk, that means that no one else in the United States government or in the country could solve it. Only the hardest issues come across the desk. If it could be resolved, it would have been resolved at a much lower level. Yeah. And so all of the decisions are hard. And all of the decisions are quite literally life and death. They may be immediate or they may be longer term because they affect people's health and safety. But there's nothing that comes across there that's not impactful. Um, 
And I think that the only reason why we haven't is because of what we learned from Bob Woodward's book, and that is that there are people actively working to make sure that the country doesn't collapse in chaos, because if they didn't, it would, given the person at the top. And that's frightening. And that means that if certain people leave or one person leaves or whoever is the group of people that's orchestrating this, if that ever changes, that means that what we've seen, which has been horrific already, has been just a warm-up. You know, when you look at this White House, um, there have been certain things that have been achieved under this White House. The Supreme Court has been, I mean, uh, Julian Castro called the nomination process a sham. So there's like, you know, can we take the Supreme Court seriously? The executive office cannot be taken seriously. The, um, The FBI, after... I don't even know if we can call it an investigation where the entire world saw that there were witnesses who were not called. Um, So that institution has lost credibility across the board. You know, if you think back to uh, what Steve Bannon said, which was like, destroy it all, you know, take it all down, destroy them all. You could say that it's happening. Now, my question to you, because you worked in a White House, is do you believe that this has been... A strategic, thought out, planned, coordinated with, you know, some level, I don't know uh, whether there's any other people's involved. Don't, don't, don't say it. Okay, I won't say it. Or, yeah. or has this just been absolute utter chaos? Um, I don't understand how anybody can live in this kind of chaos, but apparently Trump likes to. So which one do you think it is? Yeah, apparently he gets to the chaos with Arby's in the middle of the night. Yeah, what the hell? (laughs) Arby's and 12 Diet Cokes. I know, seriously. Wait a minute. As a aside, before we get into things that are terribly serious, so the White House chef said, you know, we can work with Arby's and McDonald's to replicate the flavors and make the exact same things in the White House. And he said no, because he believes that um, someone is trying to poison him. (laughs) And then it made me think um, when... The Arby's that's near the White House gets an order for 15 roast beef sandwiches from the same address. You don't think that they can figure it out who it is? Oh, God. Okay, oh, so that... <laughs> Arby's, how did that even end up being a topic of conversation? I didn't even know that people ate Arby's. Right? I mean, it's I been really like, like, the last time I ate Arby's was like, you know, when I was nine? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and it was on a dare. Okay, so to go back... <laughs> And it was two in the morning. So the <laughs> so okay, right. So serious, chaos, chaos or strategy? Okay. Which one is it? I think it's both. And usually that's the stock answer when people don't know. But I, I'll tell you how I think they work together. So Terry Gross on her show Fresh Air just recently interviewed the son of the founder of Stormfront, and he actually ran Stormfront Youth or something. It was a subsidiary website, right? The white nationalist yeah, page that is horrible. Yeah, yeah. And that targets people and it it is terrible. And where a lot of language that um, Donald Trump uses was road tested. That was the thing I didn't know. They'd been road testing it throughout the Obama era. And one of the things that he said was that the white nationalist movement doesn't view Donald Trump as one of them, but they realize that their interests align and that if they were to have a person in many respects... They would have a person like Donald Trump who has the same mentality and desire for chaos, but it would just be dressed in a much more presentable Mm. face. They would like it to be more presentable. He actually presents a problem for white supremacists because he's so friggin' out of it. Exactly. So They want to become totally 
passing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so one of the things that's interesting is that I think that they like the wreckingness because they believe that that's what has to happen and would be a part of their strategy. And he is implementing many parts of their strategy. So that's the planned part, right? It looks like the things that they would do, but he's getting there in a way that is just totally haphazard and reckless and offensive. Yeah. And so there's an interplay between the strategy here of what they want and many of the things they would be doing. So, you know, the concentration camps that we now have in the United States is the thing that they would be doing, taking passports away. By the way, the passports thing is not only for people who are naturalized citizens. They're now limiting passports for trans people. (gasps) No, wait, what? So in the beginning of October, the State Department um, announced on its website um, that it was no longer essentially granting tenure passports to trans people. That's totally new and it came out of the blue. Whoa. So what they did was that on their website without announcement, which is how you they... You mean the USCIS or which website? The, the I'm sorry, the United States State Department. Okay. For trans people, they instituted brand new rules and it was to say that trans people can now only get two-year passports instead of 10-year passports. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Are you kidding? No. And the rationale was that we don't know what a transition person would look like in 10 years, so we can only give two-year passports throughout transition. And then they made, which is insane because who knows who, like, I don't know how I'm going to look like. You like, how do you know you're going to look like in 10 years? No one does. I don't does. know what I'm going to look like you in know, 10 like, years. When you I'm take like, the passport I might at not 17, have no by the time you're 27, you don't exactly. look the same. It just, I, I'm loving my passport photo right now. <laughs> I was just looking at it. I got, I got a few more years on it. I'm like, yeah. I, I look cute back then. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with being trans. Exactly. It's not. It's nothing to do with transitioning. It's We all change in 10 years. Exactly. And so that, Every one of us. So all of these types of things that they're doing to implement Implement their insane agenda, which is about taking America back to what they believe its founding principles are, which are white nationalists. They argue that America was founded as a white nationalist country and that anything since then has been a departure. Right. Right. That's their argument. Mm -hmm. And so that's a structured way. But the chaotic way in which it's happening is not something that they're a fan of and that they don't like. So there's an interplay between the chaos and the strategy. And that's why I think it is it is both. Before we let you go, uh, we have to have our final question, which is called La Ultima y Nos Vamos. Essentially, the last one before you go or last call. Okay. What's something media that you are kind of obsessed with? It could be a, a song. It could be a poem. It could be a television series like like some that I'm watching right now, a Twitter thread that you're just like, yeah, that you want to tell us about. All right. One, because you're located in Harlem, the second season of Luke Cage, which essentially is about the women. He's marginal. (laughs) It's mostly about the women. That's why I didn't watch the show, because I thought, okay, like Alfred Woodard should have gotten an Emmy nomination for for this. That night in the club in our paradise, Cornell taunted me. He said, I wanted it. So I smacked him in the head with a bottle. I pushed his ass out the window and bashed his face in with a mic stand because he was wrong. I never wanted it. And I never wanted you. 
Damn. Okay. It's, ama- it's an amazing tour de force because she has lived her experience as a marginalized woman in the United States, and she has tried to assert power in a certain way in order to compensate for that. But that meant that she had to mimic a lot of the things that the men did, and she's trying to square that in her mind. Okay. And she's trying to square that interactions. Okay. And it's really amazing. That's one And that's thing. on Netflix? or Yeah, what? it's on Netflix. Okay, great. It's bad. The, all, most of these are Netflix. The second one is um, that I'm totally obsessed with is The Crown. And I'm sure you don't need reminding that under the terms of the agreement reached after the abdication, you are permitted to return to the United Kingdom only at the pleasure and invitation of the sovereign. Yes? I find myself unable to grant that permission. And who has fed you this poison? I came to my own mind. Well, you have no mind of your own. That's why everyone's so thrilled with you. I will go. But let me ask you this. Who has done more damage to the monarchy, me with my willfulness or you lot with your inhumanity? Oh, yeah. BTDT. Been there, done that. Yeah, but it's also it's this consistent thing of a woman in a masculine male institution. What I mean is, I already it. finished it. You finished it? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Girl. Oh, so I'm trying to tell I'm, you I'm something that's new. I gotta tell you something. No, no, no. If you're I'm like with obsessed, because you. okay. I'm behind the times all the time, so it's good. Oh, is it okay? <laughs> yeah, the crown was like big like a year ago, babe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it came out, but I just rewatched it. I, oh, she did too. So so I'm with you. I'm 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 on Team Crown. Ooh, rewatching though. Okay, all right. All I, right. I totally, totally, totally rewatch The Crown. So I'm really okay. obsessed about that. Okay. And then thirdly, um, what I am obsessed about, just to throw the curveball of wonkiness in here, there's yes. a BBC um podcast called In Our Time, and it's the wonkiest thing in the world. It's been around forever. It's- yeah. The wonkiest of it's the, the wonkiest of the wonkiest <laughs> thing, and so it's really great to like sometimes put on my headphones and like listen to you know like these professors from Oxford, you know who exactly are how do they that. talk, Imara? Could you tell oh, us? I can't do that. I'm really bad at accents. Isn't that terrible? But you went to the London School of Economics. I did, but I'm really bad at accents. People used to make sense. Um, what 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 can I do? They would be like um. <laughs> They would be like, Roger, please tell us about the fifth century golden era in Greece. Oh, I love it. Imara Jones has just become. And this black in- trans woman is spellbound. <laughs> yeah. Imara sad. Jones, uh, just saying, she has just become an all star. You are the host of The Last Sip. You're an award winning journalist. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining for me, me on In the Thick. It was We're super so fun. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And remember, dear listener, right this moment, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because it really, really, really does help people to find us. Also, it do does. that thing where you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show and click on Like Us on Facebook. You know, do all that stuff. Show us some love. It makes a difference to us. It really, really does matter. And tell all your friends and family to listen. In The Thick is produced by Juan Pablo Garnum and Nicole Rothwell. Our audio engineer is Stephanie LeBeau with additional help this week from Rebecca Weinman. Our intern is Lydia Hernandez Tapia. Our theme music is Comencemos by Jungle Fire. The music that you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kep and ZZK Records. Thank you so much for listening. Nos vemos. Ciao. Yo, people. That's of what color. We're, we're doing down That's in the we weeds. They don't the think politics. that we can get down in the weeds. Get, Hello. No, this we is so what I'm wonky. saying. It's like, we're down, I mean, we're we so, so wonky. We put the W in wonk. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> exactly.